Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to yet another vlogcast and podcast full of exciting and interesting health news. So without further ado, let's press on. Now, many, many people suffer from osteoarthritis. And uh, it's a pretty common procedure is to have a steroid injection to ease the pain and improve Mobility. Thousands upon thousands of these procedures take place every day and they're very routine. The trouble is, orthopedic surgeons aren't really asking the question, are they safe? Astonishingly, and guess what? Someone's had a look at this. Boston University School of Medicine have done some uh, sampling of patients who've had the steroid injection and found that actually it's not safe in about 8% of cases. In fact, there are complications. And worse than that, the procedure seems to speed the actual deterioration of the joints. Um, in fact, it's the, um, the injections are causing a problem known as osteo, osteonecrosis, which is the death of the bone itself. So that is actually speeding the whole um, process of osteoarthritis. Um, they did a sort of survey amongst patients who had hip or knee injections in 2018, and 8% said they reported having complications. And most of them were, in fact, from the hip injection. So the um, researchers said, you know, we've just done this routine, never asked any questions, and now it's time that we do, and that we talk to patients before they have the injection. Lynn? Well, I, you know, this is an amazing whole area. The, the whole skeletal structure and the way conventional medicine uh, deals with it, I think is really wrong-headed and will lead to um, a completely new paradigm eventually in how we treat this kind of thing. Um, everything we tend to do for arthritis, um, whether it is spinal arthritis or hip or knee arthritis, tends to make things worse other than replacements, which are admittedly miracle surgery. But we all have to admit there are a lot of potential complications. One of the interesting things about steroid injections is that if somebody gets this and, are, and is having a lot of pain, if they go on to have a hip or knee replacement within those three months, there is a higher risk of infection. And infection is one of the disastrous side effects of replacement surgery. Because if you've got an infection in the area where you've got the new device, uh, surgeons usually have to go in and do what is called a revision, which means they have to cut away more bone and then add, you know, the uh, uh, a new femur uh, and a new um, uh, cup ball and cup basically um, device into your hip if it's your hip or the whole apparatus if it's your knee. So steroids have that problem too, but what they're not looking at is okay, how do we repair these things? You know, bone is a dynamic entity that is rebuilding itself all the time. So we have to ask a bigger question about arthritis. Why does that stop? And what can be made to make it work again? And some of the most exciting evidence is both using um, stem cells. This was pioneered by an organization called Regenix 
um, the Centano Schultz Clinic in Broomfield, Colorado, of all places. Um, they really pioneered the system of using stem cells to heal joints and heal areas like this um, that are suffering from arthritis. Uh, and also a thing called um, platelet-rich plasma, which is simply stuff from your own blood uh, that is spun down so that it is platelet-rich. They take a sample of your blood, spin it down so it's platelet-rich, and inject that into the joints, and that's also healing. Mm. So before and then, you... Then before, I mean, what is the track record of these? They're both fairly new therapies, aren't they? So what? What do, do we have any figures yet on how oh, yeah. successful they are? Yeah. I mean, one of the really exciting things about Regenics and the Santano Schultz Clinic is that they record and monitor their patients' pro um, progress. They've also done studies on the stuff. Mm -hmm. And they've found that for mild and moderate uh, hip arthritis, for instance, um, they get up to a 75% success mm. rate of people feeling that mm. much better um, and resuming their mostly their normal lives. Um, an even higher success rate with knee arthritis. That mm. one seems to be the even easier one for them. Mm. But now they're even experimenting with severe arthritis. And they are finding, amazingly, that injecting these stem cells right into bone is healing the bone. Mm. So this is a whole new area. I mean, sadly, this kind of stuff often isn't on medical insurance because it's so new but it's having amazing records. And the same thing with PRP, um, the platelet-rich plasma, has a really good track record for mild situations or stenosis when the spine is narrowed and the uh, bones or vertebrae or facets are pushing on a nerve. Mm. And so all of this stuff is really worth pursuing before you go for steroids or particularly before you go to surgery. Mm. Thanks very much, Lynn. Very interesting. Since about since the end of the Second World War, 1947 onwards, um, cancer has been treated mainly with chemotherapy, a very powerful toxic agent that kills all fast-growing cells. And uh, hoping that the cancer cells, also being fast growing, will also die as a result. But of course, all cells die, and that affects the immune system, as we know. And um, what is astonishing about this is that uh, back in 1930, Otto Warburg, a biophysicist from Germany, had discovered something quite radical about cancer cells. And although his work was acknowledged with a Nobel Prize, the, um, the medical industry pretty much ignored it and have done very little about it since. And it's astonishing even to this day, skeptics say that the Warburg effect doesn't work, it's not real, but it's very real. And what he discovered was this, and it's fascinating, a little bit technical, but very fascinating. He discovered the cancer cells don't use oxygen to turn food into energy as most healthy cells do, but instead they feed off glucose or sugar. And um, as I say, this was verified and all the rest of it. It didn't do anything at all to change the cancer industry and the way we treat or understand cancer. 
And there it seems to have rested until quite recently when the University of Chicago took another look at the Warburg effect, as it's called, and discovered a missing part to it, which also explains that it is true, the process is right, he recognised it correctly. And this uh, missing part is a molecule called lactate, which is in fact the end product of the whole Warburg effect. And uh, scientists have known about lactate for many, many years and observed it, but had assumed it was just a mere waste product of the process itself. But the uh, Chicago researcher said, no, it actually plays an active part in creating other cells that also start feeding off glucose, therefore creating this idea that cancer spreads. So the lactate is actually informing other healthy cells or uh, cells that are healthy and turning them into glucose-consuming ones. Therefore, they become cancerous. And so it's like the final part of the jigsaw puzzle that demonstrates that Warburg was correct. It also changes a lot of things because it changes the way that we would view cancer and the way we would treat it. Um, and uh, the Chicago researchers discovered the whole process, the Warburg process starts with immune system cells called make macrophages, macrophages, and they are cells that produce the lactate in the first place. And they, they produce it when there's a bacterial infection or there's a lack of oxygen, which is, of course, what we talk about with, with cancer and the tumours. Now, although it's a necessary process in, in infection, it actually helps cancer itself grow. And what is also interesting is that they see a similar process going on with other diseases like sepsis, autoimmune disease, um, atherosclerosis, which is the hardening of the arteries, and the first stage of heart disease itself, diabetes, and aging. Now, you know, this is quite a radical discovery because it is like the end part of the Warburg effect. And you know, I'm, everyone's hopeful that finally are we going to start treating cancer in a different way? Because let's not forget, chemotherapy drugs are the single most profitable for the drugs industry. <clears throat> Will we change? Hmm. I'm, I have to applaud the University of Chicago for even doing this research mm. because Cancer Inc., and by that I mean all of the organizations, the drug companies, the charities, all of the organizations that profit off of cancer and the current paradigm of how to treat cancer, I don't think are going to roll over because this is an amazing study that says something really profound, which says essentially cancer isn't this weird aberration. It's not necessarily just a genetic um, inevitability, what it is, is the result of a bad diet. And Warburg was saying, you know, a high sugar diet mm -hmm. creates cancer. And many people working essentially, you know, as naturopaths and integrative specialists are telling cancer patients, the first thing they tell them is get off of sugar. Sugar feeds the cancer. Now, all you have to do is look at a lot of the charities now, the way they raise money. They have things like coffee mornings. And guess what? They have, they encourage people to make nice, big, juicy vanilla cakes and cupcakes and all kinds of sweet things to hand out in those coffee mornings. And so until those charities 
or those organizations begin to understand that what they're doing is detrimental to their patients. Any cancer patient attending those things is feeding their body and their cancer, mm. essentially. Well, it's not just the, the, the charities, Lynn. I mean, it is the oncology centers themselves. And after a chemotherapy session, they're giving cake and sweets out to patients to help get their energy levels up again. And they have a sour taste in their mouth from the chemo, mm. so they'll give them hard candies. Mm. And they don't think this makes a difference because what they want to do is keep their caloric intake up. Mm. That's how they view it. Mm. So, you know, I'm, I'm not hopeful until they really understand. Mm. And most of them are woefully ignorant about any kind of nutrition, let alone this. But for any of the people who have been working in alternative ways of treating cancer, they are being successful at, and far more successful by having the patients go on a ketogenic diet, which is a very low sugar, low carbohydrate diet that's high fat, high, you know, high protein, high vegetable plant-based stuff. When you have that kind of unprocessed diet, your body has a fighting chance. Mm. But the last thing, of course, we're, we haven't really talked about is whether the drug companies are going to roll over and say yes to this. This isn't necessarily something they can patent. Mm. I mean, maybe they'll look to an anti-lactate drug. Uh, I don't know. Mm. But um, as you say, their biggest profits are with um, chemotherapy. And so... Sadly, that's going to rule for many years to come. Mm. Uh, depression is a major problem, and um, yet no one seems to know exactly what depression is. Um, the idea that it's a chemical imbalance has been disproved, but despite that, drug companies still making an absolute fortune in uh, getting SSRI antidepressants prescribed. Um, but when they do a survey amongst depressed people, a surprising number say they would rather not have the drugs to begin with. And uh, a, new, a new study just come out that says, well, there's no real need why they should take the drugs because having instead something like a, a talking therapy, and one of them is CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, but any talking therapy seems to do, they um, are just as effective as the SSRI drugs. And um, initially they say the drugs can be slightly more effective or certainly a lot cheaper because uh, a therapist doesn't come cheap. But in the long run, they reckon there's hardly any difference and that people fare just as well, if not better, with a talking therapy. And of course, they're not taking the drugs that have all sorts of side effects and problems with them as well. I mean, the problem is, though, that no one's geared up really to treat depression. And this is uh, something that the University of Michigan have just highlighted. Um, they reckon that only about 20 to 25 percent of people suffering depression ever get the chance of seeing an actual therapist because be, because they're just so thin on the ground. We just don't have the resources in place to um, help treat these people. Um, so instead, they're given a SSRI pill. Um, and of course, the system in America, it's all insurance uh, run. 
And um, the researchers saying, well, no, in the long run, there's hardly any different in costs between the drugs and using a therapist. So maybe they're asking people, well, could we have another look at this? Can we look at depression differently? And can we find other ways of treating it, which happen to be just as effective? Um, no, Lynn, you've done some work on this yourself and, and, and there are interesting new lines of thought about depression. So do you want to share some of those thoughts with us? Well, yeah. I mean, we are featuring um, a, a doctor called Dr. Pam Shravanik, um at our Get Well um, exhibition and, and conference in London, um, which is running February 21st to 23rd, uh, 2020. And Dr. Shravanik is very interesting because unlike most psychiatrists, she doesn't believe there is such a thing as mental illness. She believes the illness starts somewhere else in the body and has certain manifestations that are mental. And one of those is depression. So when she has a patient suffering from something like depression, the first thing she does is a load of biochemical tests on this patient to find out if they have adequate nutrition, you know, are they getting enough, um, enough of certain vitamins and minerals or do they have too much of something that needs to be modified, like heavy metals? And once she looks at all of that and their thyroid and everything else and treats that, usually something like the depression or any other kind of mental illness, even the most serious kind like, like schizophrenia, mm. can allevi be alleviated or disappear. Mm. So I think that this is a really interesting study because it demonstrates that just talking to somebody, too, and working through certain cognitive processes can really help. And when that is combined with a nutritional approach, I think you'd see depression in many, many cases disappear. Mm. And I think the argument of the, the researchers is that there's a flood of money going in to support drug therapy, which instead could be diverted to training up more therapists and getting them in the field and, and helping people. Because it's the way that most of these people who suffer depression want to go. And um, so I think it's it's something that really does urgently need to be looked at. I mean, it's a problem on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, in the UK as well, the care for, for mental disease, for want of a better term, is is poor it's a it's very poor i mean and it's just there's no investment going into it because of you know the drug is supreme and that's why the the this research is saying look it really is about time we took another look at this because yeah you know, i mean because what is extraordinary about it is that the ssri is trying to fix a chemical imbalance that doesn't exist and that's the most astonishing thing of all. And it's been accepted by the American Psychiatric Association that that is the case, that, that depression is not the result of a chemical imbalance. So how on earth the drugs are supposed to treat it, we don't know. But whatever effect it has, it must be placebo. Well, absolutely. And so psychiatrists these days... Um, are essentially, as you call them, Brian, drug delivery systems. Mm. When it comes to mental illness, the way they treat it is not by talking, 
is by dispensing drugs. Mm. It may be a bit of talk, but that's not the centerpiece. The centerpiece is drug-based. Mm. And so in order for us to move past and to get funding from uh, for depression from SSRIs and into things like um, cognitive behavioral therapy and lots of other talking cures, um, you're going to have to really drain the swamp in the, in the Food and Drug Administration because they're in the main ex-drug empl employees, drug company employees, or people who are very friendly with drug companies. And of course, they're going to help them push drugs. Thanks, Tim. Everyone's heard about the opioid epidemic, the opioid scandal, which has been decimating entire communities, especially in the States. Um, well, so doctors have also been hearing about the opioid scandal, and as a result, they've been prescribing a different drug. And guess what? This drug is about to become the next scandal. Um, so instead of uh, subscribe, uh, prescribing opioid uh, painkillers to patients, they're instead prescribed them a, a new set of drugs called gabapentinoids. And um, in fact, prescribing numbers have doubled in just the last couple of years. And uh, the, the major drugs in that family are, are gabapentin and pregabalin. pregabalin. That is correct. <laughs> um, which were initially uh, produced as anti-seizure nerve pain medications. But now 95% of the drugs are being prescribed off-label which is industry speak for saying you're not prescribing them for things that they were intended for. So they are probably being now prescribed for all sorts of pain relief uh, treatments, such as for migraine and fibromyalgia. Now, no one's tracking what exactly is going on here, but the University of Michigan have been taking a look and are very, very worried about this, uh, this was happening in, in this field. And... Um, They've discovered that patients as young as 18 have been given a prescription for these new painkillers. Um, and um, they, they fear that it's now gone up to about 3.5 million prescriptions over the last 10 years. Um, worse than that, no one knows how the drugs work, apparently. No one's entirely sure of the biological mechanism for this. And, of course, the potential for abuse and addiction is high. So, look, guys, here's the new opioid scandal about to break out, and you hear it here first. But, um, Lynn, I don't know whether you want to add anything to that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that um, yet again we, you know, we turn to drugs immediately for pain relief? And well, and I think one of the things that this demonstrates is when doctors don't know what to do about mm. somebody having pain, they want to help alleviate that, mm. which is noble. Mm. But instead of trying to understand the illness more, they look for this kind of a quick fix. So it's very interesting that they are handing it out for things like migraine and fibromyalgia, mm -hmm. um, which is basically means muscle pain. Mm. You know, they don't know what fibromyalgia is caused by. They don't know what migraine is caused by. And if they were to look further upstream, you know, at biochemical profiles and look at 
whether or not these patients are allergic to something or whether there's been some sort of insult or whether they've got heavy metals or whatever it is that's causing these kinds of things, they may be able to alleviate them without drugs. But that again takes, it really requires a completely new paradigm. And thankfully, we've got a lot of integrative specialists who mm. are now going down this route, mm. but they're just as witness the opioid um, you know, epidemic, mm. um, too many are not. Okay, so we turn to a drug alert this time. Um, for people who are suffering from interstitial cystitis, there's only one drug around, it's called Elmiron. And uh, only recently have researchers discovered that it can cause very serious eye problems up to and including blindness. And it can affect up to 25% of people who've been taking the drug long term, by which they mean in excess of 10 years. Um, the good news is that if you come off the drug early enough and you're suffering eye problems, often the eye problem will reverse and normal vision can be, can be found again. Um, but if uh, you've been doing this, taking the drugs for 15 years or more, they fear that the eye problems are irreversible. Um, but it's an astonishing thing that a quarter of people taking Elmerin long term are suffering serious eye damage, and it's only just been discovered. Um, the um, researchers at Kaiser Permanent in Northern California are the ones who've made the discovery, and they found that especially it seems to damage the retina of the eye. And um, they say that, um, they, they, I mean, it's based on quite a small study, to be fair. It was six patients who were on the drug, and all of them uh, started to suffer quite bad vision problems. Um, but they have, from there, discovered 140 patients who had taken about 5,000 Elmerin pills over the 15 years, and 91 of these agreed to have their eyes examined, and of those, 22 had damaged retina, so that's the 25%. Um, a real worry, because the Elmeron is the only drug for uh, cystitis, and people do really need to look elsewhere for treatment, I think. At 25% for long-term use can lead to blindness. I think they desperately do need to look elsewhere. Well, and I think, once again, this is a situation where you know, medicine doesn't really completely understand what this is. Mm. I mean, interstitial cystitis is essentially bladder pain mm. and uh, pelvic pain. And there could be lots of other reasons for this. Mm. I mean, one of the areas that I wonder if they're looking at is the spine mm. and causing, you know, the spine um, having any kind of influence on, you know, if, if it's pinching a nerve, mm. you know, the nerve could be leading to the bladder, who knows? Mm. Um, but, you know, this is a problem until we take a more holistic approach. Once again, we try to look for drugs mm. and people don't join the dots. And one of the really worry worrying things here is if they think it is age-related macular degeneration, they will then prescribe another <laughs> drug that could interact with this drug because they don't understand yeah. it well enough. Yeah. So... Um, my advice to people suffering from this form of cystitis um, and bladder pain is to try to find an integrative specialist who may take another approach. Mm, thanks, Lynn. Your cholesterol levels are high, and what do you do? You take a statin drug, right? 
No, wrong, you take an avocado. Eating one avocado a day is as effective, if not more so, than a statin drug and reduces the so-called bad LDL cholesterol levels. Does so after just five weeks. So eating one avocado a day for five weeks reduces your bad cholesterol level better than a statin can do. Um, they uh, tested it at Penn State University, rather, tested this on a group of 45 people who were all overweight or obese. And um, some were given just a low-fat diet without avocado, and the rest were given the same with an avocado. And it was the avocado group that showed significant falls in their LDL cholesterol levels in that short time. Um, it seems that fruit targets LDL particles that have become oxidized, exposed to oxygen to you and me. And these are the ones that cause the buildup of plaque in the arteries. And of course, that causes the artery walls to narrow. So the way ahead is avocado yet again, then it's the answer, the power, power fruit. It's an amazing superfood, Brian. Mm. And this makes a lot of sense because what they're finding with um, with uh, age-related um, degenerative diseases like type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. is that the real answer isn't just lowering sugar. It's also adding the good fats. Um, people mm -hmm. following a ketogenic diet, which is a, uh, a high-fat uh, protein and plant-based diet, um, without grains and sugars are reversing type 2 diabetes. It's the state-of-the-art, really, uh, recommendation now. And those high fats, this is really ironic because the whole platform on which statins have been based is the idea that you need to lower fats in your food. And we're finding exactly the reverse. Avocados are very high in saturated type fats. And that is the good fats, mm. you know, and they're on the same uh, uh, basic level as something like coconut oil or even goose fat or beef drippings. Mm. These are now seen to be the good fats and, of mm. course, olive oil and the things that are healing people. Very good. Well, on an optimistic and happy note, we shall bid farewell. So I'm Brian Hubbard and thank you for watching or listening. And I'm Lynn McTaggart, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>